Well, this morning uh, we are really beginning our study in the book of Jeremiah. Last week we did an introduction and um, we covered a lot of ground in uh, a really short period of time and I trust that that was helpful for you. But today we want to dig into the text and really hear what God has uh, for His people to know. Now, I want to start by just giving a couple of... um, uh, well, a couple of ways of looking at this so that you'll have a better chance of understanding what God is trying to speak to us about. So many of you are long-time Bible, church, God people. And, and I'm one of those. And we're thankful that we have people that have long history with the Lord and with the church. But we also are the type of church that is very welcoming to all people. And what we try to express to people is that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whether you're an atheist or a fully devoted follower of Christ, we welcome you to come into our church, to be part of our family, and to experience what it means to take one step closer to God. So that's because of that, we have a lot of people that are searchers, that are seekers, that still haven't really decided whether or not Christ is for them. And to those of you who are new to this faith, new to this word, I want to speak a couple of words to you. The first is this. Uh, We're going to be looking at an ancient book, a book that was written 2,600 years ago. Pretty phenomenal. We don't have any other literature in all of the world like that. And so this book that was written 700 years before Christ, uh, we're going to be talking about the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke into a time of real trouble for God's people. Now, God's people are defined as Israel. And sometimes they were divided kingdoms. Sometimes it was called Israel and Judah. If you hear me referring to those names, these were God's chosen people that he chose way back with Abraham. So I'll just give you a little background information. What you need to know is when we're talking, when Jeremiah is speaking to Israel, that's deeply rooted in history. But it's also prophetic. Okay, the word that Jeremiah gives is also prophetic. And what that means is that word is deeply embedded in us today. So Jeremiah spoke historically and Jeremiah also speaks eschatologically or in the future. And that word is a word to you and to me. Whenever God talks about his chosen people in the Old Testament, it's Israel. God's chosen people in the New Testament is the church of Jesus Christ. Because he said, it's not one who has been circumcised of the flesh, but one who has been circumcised of the heart. And those are believers, Christ followers in the New Testament. So what I want you all to understand is that when we're talking about Jeremiah speaking to Israel and Judah, it is also God through his Holy Spirit speaking to the church of Jesus Christ, you and I. So that will help you when we go through, and he talks about different things with his children. Think about, okay, this is speaking to me. This is God speaking to me. Now, another thing I want to say as we begin is that there is a big difference between guilt and shame. Now, the reason I say that is because God lays a lot of guilt on Israel, and it is richly deserved. (laughs) Just like there are times when you feel God laying guilt on you. Now, let me tell you the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is when is God ordained, urging in your spirit, in your soul, that says, no, 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 that's not working. That's not working. You go that direction, you're going to run into a, a brick wall. You go that direction, you're going to go outside of my will. 
You do that, and that's going to hurt you, and that's going to hurt others around you. That's guilt. And every person I know that is a Christ follower, or even those who are not Christ followers, feel guilt. It's, it's God saying, no, don't go that way. You go that way, you're going to hurt yourself. You go that way, you're going to hurt your family. You go that way, you're going to hurt someone else. So guilt is good. Guilt is saying, go back to God. Guilt is saying, go back to the source. Guilt is saying, Jesus is the answer. So when you feel guilt, be, be glad of that, okay? Shame is something completely different. Shame is from the enemy. Shame says it's not, guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says you are wrong. Shame says you don't matter. Shame says there's something wrong with you as a person. That is from the enemy. That is not from God. So today when you're experiencing this message, there will be times because God is very direct about, his, about the guilt of Israel's people, of Israel. And therefore God is very anxious to tell us that we should feel guilty about some of the things we've done. But there's always hope at the end, and that hope is redemption. So if you're feeling a bit of guilt during the sermon, that's okay. That's the Lord speaking to you. If you're feeling shame... That's something completely else. You put that out of your mind and say, Lord, that's not from you. That's not from you. I know I am redeemed. I know I'm a child of God. I know that I have a place in your family. But I feel guilt over the things that I've done. So I just wanted to kind of set that stage uh, for each and every one of you. So today we're going to talk about one of your favorite subjects. Divorce. Oh, no, that's not one of our favorite subjects. That's one of the most painful subjects that we can talk about. Uh, Ruth. Graham Bell. Uh, Ruth Graham uh, was Billy Graham's wife of many, many years. Of course, she's gone to be with the Lord many years ago now. Billy is in his 90s and still alive. But people used to interview uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth Graham and said, Ruth, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy? You know, because we all have problems. Everybody that's married has problems. And she said, no, I've never considered divorcing Billy. I've considered murder many times. Often, I've considered, but I've never, I've never really considered divorce. So, and we laugh about that, but, but really, divorce is a type of death. Now, if we're typical of any other church, or typical of even the world, about half of people in our church have experienced a divorce. So, it's a painful thing. And it's something that, um, that breaks your heart. And it's something that really renders your soul this deep pain that you can't even describe. And for those of us who have not been divorced, we've been touched often by people close to us, people in our lives who have been divorced. Divorce hurts. It's painful. And God speaks about this very painful thing in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. This is what he says. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? God hates divorce. Thank God He always gives us a second chance, but God hates divorce because of what it does to His children. Why is God actually... If if God hates divorce, and here God is considering divorcing... His chosen people. Here God is considering divorcing Judah and Israel. If God hates it, so why would He even consider the D word? What outrageous, egregious sins must a bride commit for God Himself to file 
for divorce. We hear a lot today about reasonable grounds for divorce. But how reasonable are they? I did something. Uh, sometimes it's fun just to play with Google. I Googled, uh, what did I put? I, I Googled in um, reasons for Hollywood divorces. Okay? So here's what some of them were. Fraud. Irreconcilable differences. Oh, that's, always, that's kind of a catch-all, right? We fell out of love. What is it, like a virus or what? I mean, we've grown apart. It was fun while it lasted. We're no longer sexually compatible. Her cooking stinks. His feet smell. We grew tired of each other and mutual boredom. Those are some of the reasons, some of the things that have been filed in Hollywood divorces. But in this case, when God is considering filing for divorce against His family, there are more reasons that are really valid. None of these reasons would be enough for the God of the eternal covenant to end his marriage with his own people. God files for divorce? Would he? Could he? Well, yes, he could, and it seems as if he would. Jeremiah 2.9 says, Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. Let's face it, the honeymoon is over. God is taking His people, Israel, to divorce court. In Jeremiah 2, if you have your Bibles, you can open to that chapter, Jeremiah 2. But we, in the sermon notes, we put in all of the passages we'll be looking at today. Plus, we'll put them up on the screen as well. So what's happened? Jeremiah 2 is his legal testimony about why he should divorce Israel. What happened from this bride that he first experienced this passionate love with? What, what happened after the honeymoon? And so God remembers the honeymoon. What it was like. He pages through the photos of his wedding album. There's an ache in his heart. He remembers how his bride Israel adored him when they were first wed. Jeremiah 2.2, 2, I remember God testifies the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. God is on the witness stand in the agony of love. The kind of agony that has a person who's still deeply in love with his wife or his husband, but that love is not returned. It is unrequited. Sheldon Van Aken, who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, describes this in a book he wrote uh, entitled A Severe Mercy. And this is what Van Aken wrote about love. To hold her in my arms against the twilight, and be her comrade forever. This was all I wanted, so long as my life should last. And this, I told myself with a kind of wonder, this was what love was. This consecration. This curious uplifting. This sudden, inexplicable joy. And this intolerable pain. I think all of us who have been married or at the very least been in love can understand that intolerable pain because we are married to people who are flawed. We are married to those who are completely human just as Israel was. So Israel loved God like a newlywed and loved God passionately in those early days. I remember... Um, when Sherry and I got married on August 1st, 1970, um, 
I had, all through college, I had lived at home. I was able to drive to uh, college, to San Diego State University. And so all through college, I lived at home. I was 21 years old, almost 22. I was marrying my bride. She was 19 years old. Uh, don't try this at home, by the way. Uh, and I, I, you know, we always say, well, we were more a cheer back then. Well, we probably weren't, but we got married anyway. So we're getting married, and it's my wedding day, and I'm in this little a mobile home that was belonged to my grandparents. And Sherry and I were going to live there. That was going to be our first residence, this little tiny mobile home. And uh, my friend, my best friend Leroy, who was going to be my best man, spent the night with me in the a mobile home. Sherry and I had already moved a lot of our stuff in there, and, and uh, she'd not spent a night there yet, so it was all exciting and everything. But as we were getting dressed for our wedding and putting on our tuxedos, Leroy said, are you, are you scared about this? And I said, yeah, I, I really kind of am. He, I said, honestly, I'm excited about the sex thing. You know, I'm a guy, you know, I'm 21 years old, so that's good. I'm excited about that. But the rest of it, man, I have no idea what I'm doing. I really don't. And, and so there was this kind of fear and trembling along with the good stuff. There was this, oh, man, what am I getting into? But yet I told Leroy after everything else, I said, but you know what? I believe deep in my heart that Sherry is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. There was that deep sense of devotion and passion. Now, the word devotion in Jeremiah 2.2 is the Hebrew word chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. And it means no unbroken promises. It means unshakable loyalty, unending devotion, and unfailing Loving kindness. Okay, now that's what that honeymoon, passion, joy was all about when God first fell in love with Israel and Israel with Him. Now, in a couple of weeks, we have a a young couple that are going to be married in our church, and most of you know them. They've been in our church for some time. Uh, Scott Brown and Lori Dawson. Lori Dawson, where are you? I know you're out there. Come on, stand up. Stand up, okay? Now stay standing up. Okay, now listen, listen, this is what you're called to. And those of us who are married, we need to reaffirm this. God's devotion to you is the devotion that he wants you to share with each other. Just said, no unbroken promises, Scott and Lori, that you'll have unshakable loyalty to each other, unceasing devotion, and unfailing loving kindness. Now, the rest of you, are you willing to pray that for Scott and Lori as they get married? Yes, we will. God bless you guys. You can sit down. See, you're kind of already married already, but don't, don't take that too far. You know, you still have a couple weeks uh, to wait. See, it's more than a legal contract. It's a covenant. It's where we get the name of our denomination. A covenant is a two-way, mutual, unbreakable promise. That's what this fidelity was that God felt towards Israel and Israel felt towards God this commitment of fidelity and adoration. Believers today, you and I, we, we get this idea. Sometimes we, we've, we've got it all mixed up and we think that somehow religion is about obedience to God's law. Now, certainly there's a part of our faith that is about obedience. I, I'm not saying it's not. But when we think of our religion as being just about obedience to God's setting down Ten Commandments, we've missed it completely. Because God never intended our relationship with Him to be based on mere obedience of the will. God wants our hearts as well as our wills. This is a, redemption is a romance. 
This relationship we have with God is a passionate, intimate romance. It is not something that is, God is far away and we are way down here. This is that passion. Now, if you ever want to read a book about passion and intimacy and sexuality as God intended and all of those things, read the Song of Solomon. Now, I've told you this many times before, but let me just say it right here. You guys need to read your Bibles. There's some good stuff in there, okay? And Song of Solomon is one of those things. Listen to this sacred romance that the writer of Song of Solomon, probably, uh, uh, probably Solomon, wrote uh, in, in these words. A Song of Solomon 8, 6-7. Here's what he said. Place me like a seal over your heart. Now, that's not an arf-arf seal. You get that? Okay. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Isn't that great? It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. That's the kind of dance of redemption that we do with God, our Heavenly Father. That's what He wanted with Israel. That's what He wants with the church of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you just to be an obedient robot. He wants you to be His lover. He wants you to be in a romance with Him. He wants you to be so intimate and so passionate and so dedicated to Him that nothing will shake your relationship with God. That's what He wants for you and I. That's why when I tell couples that I do counseling, you can ask Scott and Lori. We talk about, I said the most important, I know that most people are excited about the honeymoon and they're excited about the, the, the after wedding thing, you know, where you do the dancing and all that. That's all good stuff. But I'll tell you what really matters. It's the vows. It's the vows. You throw everything else away. Throw the honeymoon, the after party, the rest of the, the, the marriage ceremony. What really matters are the vows. Because you were saying, because a vow is something that you're not to break. A vow is before God and these witnesses, you are mine and I am yours. And God wants that from you. And God wanted that from His children of Israel. And He wants, and here, here's this, and I, I don't want to be in any way indelicate, but our kids are over there and you're adults, okay? Every time, as a married couple, every time you make love, you are sealing that vow once again. You're saying, you are mine and I am yours and this is what we are intended to be together forever. That's why sex out of sight of marriage never works. That's why it breaks people and it breaks their hearts and breaks their relationships. It is tended to be that constant, constant battering of saying, I love you, I am madly in love with you, I want you, I know you, you matter to me. And that's that constant renewal of the vow every single time you make love. It's God's way of doing it. And nothing or no one will take your place is what you're saying in these vows. This covenant relationship of love and passion and devotion, the intimacy of love between a man and a woman is that beautiful picture of intimacy between God and His children. Now this intimate love relationship with Israel was real. And it was based really on three things from the text. First of all, God had passion for His bride. Verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Israel was holy to the Lord the first fruits of his harvest. In other words, God's best and most valued possession was his children. God's best and most valuable possession is you. You are the apple of his eye. You matter more to him than any other human being on this planet. That's how special you are to him. Your picture is on God's refrigerator in heaven. 
That's how much He loves you. He is so committed to you, and you are His. And that's, God had this passion for His bride. But also God protected His bride. He would not allow anyone else to taste His fruit. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them. Chapter 2, verse 3, the second part. It's like the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. book of Exodus in the first uh, oh, 10 to 15 chapters where uh, Moses finally led the Israelites out of Egypt and they were crossing the Red Sea. And as they were still crossing the Red Sea, uh, Pharaoh had changed his mind. And the Egyptians were chasing after the children of Israel. And they're going, oh no, we're going to die here. Moses reminded them, no, God has promised to deliver you. And this is what he said in Exodus 14, 13. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Your enemies become God's enemies. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them. And then also God provided for His bride. I brought you into a fertile land. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. God gave Israel a beautiful home, plenty of food in the pantry, milk and honey, fine bone china on the table. And that was the honeymoon. And it was awesome. But the honeymoon didn't last. And so God defines His grounds for divorce. It's time to wake up and smell the burnt toast. Has anyone here, besides Scott and Lori, experienced perpetual joy in their relationship? As soon as the vows are said, it seems to take, for many people, a turn south. And we've all experienced that loss of passion, that subtle seepage of serendipity. A three-year, seven-year, ten-year, twenty-five-year itch. We lose that butterfly effect, that tingling desire. We fall into a rut. We forget our first love. Have you ever felt like that? Well, in Jeremiah 2, the bride, Israel, decides the honeymoon is over. And you ask, how can that happen? They were married to God. He was the perfect husband. He never did anything wrong. He never loved anyone else but them. The wedding was so beautiful. The honeymoon was so passionate. The bride was so devoted. The husband was so faithful. Where did it all go wrong? Well, God steps up to the witness stand in divorce court and asks this question. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Chapter 2, verse 5. God did not leave His people. They dumped Him. In fact, if you ever feel far away from God, you need to ask this question. Who moved? God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who moved? Back when Sherry and I were dating, I had this really cool car. Uh, it was um, before I had this uh, you know, classic I told you about a few weeks ago, the 67 uh, Volkswagen. This was uh, a 1959 Chevy Malibu. 348, four-barrel. Man, it could burn rubber like 20 feet. It was an awesome car. And I, um, anyway, so I take Sherry out in that, 59 Chevy. And that was styling and it was cool. And it was one of those bench seats, and these are big cars. A 59 Chevy, big bench seat. You could, four people abreast in one of those things. But, so Sherry would always sit close to me. 
Sherry's a very physical person. Sometimes she'd almost be in my lap when I'm driving. I said, come on, honey. And then one time she got mad at me for something. Only God knows what. I mean, I, I don't understand it. And she was sitting on the other side of the car, which seemed like a, like a mile away. And she, I said, what's, Sherry, what's the matter? She said, well, I think we, we've grown apart. I said, well, I haven't moved anywhere. I'm still sitting right here behind the wheel. You're over there. I've got a mile away. That's what God says. God, I feel so from, distant from you. God says, I've never left you. I've never forsaken you. I'm always with you. Don't get feelings mixed up with reality. I'm there. God did not leave his people. They dumped him. Why would anyone leave God? It makes no sense. Why would a bride leave a perfect husband? Why, when was God unfaithful so that they would lose their love and their passion for him? He was not. God is the one who has been wronged. He is the plaintiff. And this is his accusation in chapter 2, verse 5, the second part. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Now, right now, if you're feeling a sense of guilt, that in your life you felt you followed worthless idols, that guilt is from God. If somehow you feel like you're a bad person, that's the enemy. Dismiss that. But if you're feeling guilt, that's from the Holy Spirit right at this moment. This is God's legitimate grounds for divorce. Adultery. God's people have been having affairs with worthless idols. The word worthless in Hebrew is hebel, H-E-B-E-L. It means mist or vapor. So all of these idols that we're following after are like, oh boy, but it's a mist. It's there and then it's gone. That sexual affair, it's there and then it's gone. That passion you have for another human being, it's there and then it's gone. That just desiring this particular house, after you've been in it for a year, you say, I want a different house, I want a better house, the car, whatever it is, it's there and then it's gone. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's something you can touch, but it has no substance. Whereas God is something you can't touch that has ultimate substance. Do you see the difference? We went to, in 2006, we went to uh, Alaska on a cruise, and one of the stops was where they, where was they have all the totems? What was that? The catch again? Okay. It was cool. And they had all these totems. And I was talking to one guy. He was out there painting the totem because it was worn out and weathered and everything. And I said, and he was, a, uh, he was a native. And I said, tell me a little bit of the history of the totems. And he told me about how that they originally were uh, thought of, they were thought of as gods. And this is a way that, you know, God could be represented. And I said, isn't it kind of weird that, uh, you know, God has to be repainted every once in a while? And he has to be, couldn't God repair himself? And we kind of laughed about that, but I thought, that's pretty kind of true. I mean, that is something that, it looks really good on the outside, but there's no substance. It's a mist. It's a vapor. The Israelites followed after idols that appear beautiful but have no substance. And so the marriage begins to die of neglect. They no longer say, where is the Lord? They no longer recount acts of God, of what God has done, how that God followed them in the desert. He provided sweet water. He provided manna from the sky. He provided quail. He provided all these things for the children of Israel. They stopped talking about God. Where is the Lord? You need to check your, especially young families here this morning, check this. How often do you talk about the Lord in your home? I'm not talking about just the standard stuff. The, the prayer at mealtime, the prayer at bedtime. How often do you just casually and very intimately talk about the Lord with the, to the kids, with each other? You see, when you stop talking about the Lord and recounting the good deeds of the Lord, that's when your 
romance begins to grow cold. Stop looking at the photo albums. You focus only on what can be seen and touched, but that has no substance. They followed worthless idols. That is grounds for divorce. And then God provides the evidence. And uh, this is pretty uh, scary. Um, When you recognize what God has laid out here, you'll not only see it was true historically of Israel, but it's also true of the church of Jesus Christ today. Jeremiah 2 does not describe a situation of irreconcilable differences. This is not a no-fault divorce. God has legitimate grounds for terminating the marriage. And the rest of the chapter is simply evidence of infidelity of God's own people. With the logic of a lawyer and the longing of a lover, he proves beyond a shadow of doubt that his people have forsaken their first love. Let's take a look at the evidence quickly. Exhibit A. Chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation ever changed gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. What a ridiculous notion. Has a nation ever changed gods? (laughs) I don't know that historically. I've read a lot of history. I don't know that historically. You travel the world from east to west, no nation has ever changed its gods. Shoes, maybe, yes, hairstyles, but not gods. Even pagans are loyal to their gods. They cart them around wherever they go. Did the Canaanites abandon Baal or Asherah? Nope. Did the Babylonians forsake Bel or Merodach? Ridiculous. There are gods. The Israelites are so confused. They are what I would call cross-worshipping. Partner-swapping is what it is. Kind of bartering spiritually. Here they're living for God on Sunday, or in their case the Sabbath on Saturday, but yet during the week they would replace Him with something that was wood or iron. We do the same. We straddle the fence. We cross-worship. In fact, Jesus Himself said to the church of Asia Minor, and He would say to the church of Jesus Christ today, these words from Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one, one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, I am out to spit you out of my mouth. Now that's a very uncomfortable verse. Again, remember the guilt-shame thing. Don't feel shame. Jesus said these words and said, you know what? Make a choice. Either give give yourself to me passionately and devotionally, or walk away. But this straddling the fence... Worshiping God on Sunday, living like crazy, weird things the rest of the week. No, no, no. Make your choice. Pick a, pick a way of life. Pick a, a, what's a God to choose. Understand, try and figure out who you're really worshiping. Is it going to be God or worthless idols? Because it's no small thing. In chapter 2, verse 12, Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. That's exhibit A. They switched gods. How ridiculous is that? Exhibit B, what is it like when God's people leave their husband? It's like leaving a spring of living water. Verse two, Chapter 2, verse 13, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Imagine living in the desert. Oh, that's right, we don't have to imagine 
The thing that we need more than anything is water. And what if you had this unlimited, fresh, pure water bubbling up from the ground? And you turn your back on that and you walk over the canal behind my house. And you take a rusty bucket and you dip it into the canal where all of the fish dwell and all the weeds and trash. And you drink out of that bucket. That's what God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah. You are turning away from something that is sweet and wholesome and pure and beautiful and godly, this this water, this living water, and you're turning away and you're turning to something that is rusty and dirty and filthy and somehow you think you're satisfying your thirst. It doesn't work. So often we think that this kingdom, what we call the little kingdom, the kingdom of man, this kingdom is so important to us. And God says, but I have water for you that will quench your thirst. I have bread for you that will satisfy your hunger. And all of these other idols that you're going after, none of them matter. None of them. Broken cisterns. Exhibit C. When God's people leave their husband, it's like a beast breaking free from its yoke. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. It's really interesting. The imagery there is this, like this water buffalo that's kind of shaken off its bonds, the, the, the yoke that's on it, and now it's running free, and yet it has no purpose, it has no point, it has no anything, except it's just running free. And somehow, some way, that oxen thinks that that's a good thing. Romans 6.16 says of you and I, as modern day followers of Christ, Don't you know that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience to righteousness? In other words, we have a choice. Who who are we going to be slaves to? We can be slaves to God, and I choose that freely and openly. Or we can be slaves to our own sin. Kind of like a raging bull. Exhibit D. Israel has become a street corner prostitute. 220. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down with you lay down as a prostitute, shacking up with other gods that you hardly even know. But they sound interesting, and they sound kind of fun, and there's no condemnation there, so maybe I'll just try that God. Baal worship included, and this is some of the imagery in Jeremiah, Baal worship included ritual prostitution. Lying with other gods. Exhibit E. An indelible stain. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. Sin is not a cosmetic problem. It gets in your skin. It gets in your soul. And it can only be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It's not something you can wash off or brush off. People that experience adultery in a marriage, only one out of ten marriages survive that when you search after another God. There's more. Exhibit F, a she-camel running aimlessly. Can you almost see it? Uh, a, a camel just kind of running everywhere. What do I do? Where do I go? What am I supposed to do? You know, they have no idea of where they're going. Exhibit G, a wild donkey in heat. Like an uncontrollable sexual urge in an animal. It's addictive. It's overwhelming. And you have come to believe that this will satisfy me. And it never does. Exhibit H. Does a maiden forget her jewelry? A bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. 
days without number. The key there is that we simply have forgotten God. That is the worst part of all. How painful to realize that God's beautiful bride, Israel, or God's beautiful bride, the church, has simply forgotten Him. All the evidence is heard. What is the verdict? Is there enough evidence for a conviction? (laughs) Are you kidding? The evidence sticks like taffy on a two-year-old. God wins. No defense. God gets the house, the chariot, the villa in Assyria, a large alimony, and the dog. He gets it all. And then He would say to the church today, to you and I, well, how about you? Do you still love me like a newlywed loves passionately? Are you searching for water in a broken cistern? Have you forgotten God? But here's the good news, friends. And this is so amazing about God's Word. You always have this, we could stop right there and say, and go home saying, man, I feel really lousy. (laughs) I feel guilty and it's from God and I know I have searched for other gods. I know I've embraced other gods. I know I've put things above God. I know that and I feel guilty and I feel bad. But listen to what God says in 3.14. Return faithless people, declares the Lord. This really moves me. For I am your husband. He says to this bride who has had affairs with other gods, he says to this bride who has chased after other ways of doing things, he says to this bride who has stopped sleeping with God and are sleeping around with other people, he says, to, he says I'm, your, I'm still your husband. I still love you. I can't let you go. I know I should pull the trigger on this divorce. I know it. I know that you're not going to probably get any better, but I can't help myself. I love you too much. With this... This breathtaking statement. He says, I am your husband. It is the grace of God to the ungracious. It is God's faithfulness to the unfaithful. Even when God's love is unrequited, He does not stop loving you. Don't you ever think He stopped loving you. There's nothing you can do that will make Him stop loving you. I don't care what kind of sin you've committed. Although God's marriage is violated, He does not break His covenant with Israel or with you and me. And there's one last beautiful word. Jeremiah 31, verses 3 and 4. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. There's a lot of power there. What does he call Israel? Oh, virgin Israel. I know you've been unfaithful to me. I know you've sought after other gods. I know you've committed adultery. But because of my love for you, and because of my forgiveness for you, I will will put you back in a position of being the virgin Israel. I will forgive your sins. I will wipe them out as if they never happened. Oh, virgin Israel. His bride He restores. The cleansing is so complete. The forgiveness is so thorough. He restores her to the wedding night. A virgin. Pure, passionate, and madly in love with Him. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we...